Today, we're going to keep going in our Kingdom of God series and the here and now. And, and if, you're, if you're new today, one of the things we've been doing in the here and now series is a lot of people mistake the Kingdom of God for something that's later. And it is later. It, it is both now and not yet. Okay, that's very important that you know that. The kingdom of God is now and not yet. It's both. And, and so today we're talking about what does it mean for, for, for God to uh, have his kingdom executed and in, in pushed into play, you know, to play out in, in real life terms. Um, one of the things I, I want to, I um, and I pro- you've heard me say this before. Um, you, you've heard me say this before, but I, I truthfully could probably say this every single Sunday. I really could. And I'll tell you why I could say this every single Sunday, because I really have to think about it all the time in my own life. I really do. There is a, a major roadblock that you and I encounter when it comes to understanding God. And, and that major roadblock is real. It's not impossible. It's not unable to be detoured and go around, but there is a major roadblock that you and I encounter all the time when it comes to understanding God, and that is it's inevitable that we are going to interpret Scripture and we're going to interpret God through American eyes. It's not, it doesn't make us bad people. It does, it's not bad. It's just the reality. We look at life the only way we know how to look at, at it. I, I wasn't born in Brazil. I, I wasn't born even in Maine, I was born in the South. I was born in Tennessee. I was raised by Southern parents, right? So that's going to impact the way I look at everything. And so often I'll talk about how uh, the way you were born, or, or that is where you were born, and the way you were raised is much like glasses. That It puts a filter, and, and I look at these things. I, I just got the, I, I used to have glorified readers, and now I've got these progressives. And, you know, it's just a reality that... I'm getting older, and I don't really like it at all. I fought uh, wearing glasses forever until one day I got up here, and I picked up my Bible, and this is no lie. It was about two years ago, and I couldn't see right there. And I'm like, I don't have this verse memorized, and I am in trouble right now in the name of Jesus, and I need help, okay? And, and I thought about, well, and this is, this is how far I'll go. I thought, what if I could buy me like a magnifying glass that nobody could see, and I could put it right there, and I could keep away from the glasses because I'm holding on to young as long as I can, right? And and then, and then I, you know, I, that's just, I had to face reality. So I, but it, it is amazing what happens when you put these jokers on. And so these things paint up a lot for how I look at life. And so, you know, I've also got, I've got uh, several pair of Oakleys because that's my way of trying to stay relevant with my boys, okay, uh, that I have some sutros. If you don't know what sutros are, I'm way more hip than you are. And, and so I've got me some Oakley sutros. And, and they're kind, they kind of paint the world. Uh, one of them is like a prism-colored rose, and then another is like a blue color and, and you know, for the type of, I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm holding on. I'm, you can see I'm, I'm grasping for youth here. Um, but, but the, the, the lens that you have in life is going to shade. So, like, let me, like, this is Nashville, right? So that, that's Nashville with a kind of a shade of green. You know, it, whatever lens you have in life and whatever lens you look at life through, it's going to paint it. Your, your experience and the way you were raised. If you were raised in Nashville, you have a different perspective and you have a different opinion of Nashville than 
you do when, if you were raised here and you watch. Look, there's every now and then you'll meet somebody that actually is from Franklin. It's shocking, right? You, and, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember when yeah, I went you know, here when it was this way. So then, uh, the, the, you know what? What you saw in your mom and dad, believe it or not, what you saw in your biological parents when it comes to marriage, when you got married... The way you grew up painted a lens of your marriage, and so that's kind of a little bit ruby-colored. And, and so whatever you experienced in your home is going to paint the way you look at marriage, the way, fellas, what you saw in your dad, all the good and all the bad, it, it, all of it, it paints the way you look at marriage, right? Women, what you saw in your mom, what you saw in your dad, the traits you learned. You know, my mama, my mama cooks fried okra in, in, in the best way that any human could ever cook it. And she cooks it the way that Nanny Coleman cooked it, right? Because that's how she grew up. And so it is, but it is still the best way to eat okra. And I'll put that up against bishops any day up times 10, right? So it's, you learn from your, your family of origin. What we, what we believe about our bodies, health. Right? What we believe about our health, what we believe about sickness, right? So if you whatever you believe about your body, whatever you believe about aging, you bring all of that into your Christianity. And and you you so every time you pick up the word of God, all of your life experiences and your opinions, whether we whether we like it or not, I do it, you do it. We bring our opinions to the Bible. And you know, one of the first things the Lord had to do in me when I came to Jesus when I was 17 years old is he immediately, as I began to read the Word of God, you know what he began doing? Breaking down my opinions. Because we do it. it. It doesn't make us bad people. We are in a, a constant battle. For, for, and so if, if you're going to learn who God is, you're going to have to learn that you bring a lot to the table of your interpretation. And we're in a constant battle. We are in a constant battle for authority, right? I, I, what, let me tell you, when I was a kid, um, the only reason I went to elementary school, there were two reasons I went to elementary school. One was I had to. That was, that was the n chief number one reason. But the other reason was at my East Lincoln Elementary School in Tullahoma, Tennessee, every year we had field day. And field day was fire emoji, okay? I mean, some of y'all get that on Thursday. If you got grandkids, you know exactly what I meant, right? Field day was awesome, man. It was the best. And we did it right. I mean, we had, we played, we had dodgeball with... You could take out, you could decapitate people with the dodgeballs we had. It was real, right? And we need to come back to that in Jesus' name. That is the way that dodgeball should be played, right? And I'm telling you, uh, if you, listen, if you cannot cause an elbow surgery in dodgeball, you're not doing it right, okay? And I'm just telling you, we had these red inflatable balls that we would get our PE teacher. We knew where she kept the needles, and we would deflate them a little bit so you could grab onto them a little bit like Tom Brady, and then just wham! You know, and you could just knock people out, man. It was awesome. Um, 
it was great, and we had no mercy, uh, you know. And then as it got down to the really good players, we would, uh, we would say, okay, no taking out feet because you're running. And we played on asphalt because we were men, okay, and, and, and in the third grade. And, and so, but the thing about field day that was so awesome was we had tug of war. And I saw this picture made me think. We had tug of war, man. Look, just, I mean, and my, my, my teachers were awesome. They would make, they would get the fire department, they would get the fire department to come and they would dig a hole and they would fill it with water. And the fire truck would show up and they would bring out this hose, man. I promise you I'm getting somewhere with Jesus on this. And then, and then, and then they, would, they would fill this stuff up and they would pull it and you would get over that mud hole and buddy, it was on. And, and, and they always did it like the last thing of the day because inevitably somebody was going in, right? And, and we would just, in, we were in this battle and it was so good. And then the teachers would get involved and it was the last day of school and it was epic. And, you know, but th- that tug of war, my point is that that tug of war, because of our world and because of our worldview and because of our opinions and because of our DNA and because of the way we look at life, we're always in a tug of war with who gets the authority. We're always in a tug of war with who, and that's where a lot of our strife comes from. It's also a lot of where our unbiblical thinking comes from. Because a lot of us, every, me included, every one of us have thoughts and patterns that aren't biblical, that God is constantly, we're in a constant tug of war. And so I want to say something to you, Christian. If you're always in a tug of war with your worldview, you're really never going to understand exactly who God is until you realize that you need to drop the rope. And you realize that we... You and me, we conform to the scriptures. The scriptures don't bend to I teach my boys all the time. We don't bend, we don't God doesn't bend to us, we bend to him. He molds us. We don't mold, we don't base what we think of God based on what we think, right? Based on what we think. And so I say all of that to say. I think there's a lot of misinterpretation about who God is when it comes to his judging things and why he judges things. So today I'm going to talk to you about understanding God's judgment. For the last several weeks, we've been going through the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds. And that whole story, the main thrust of that story is that there is going to be a judgment, okay? A final judgment. If you read Revelation, there's going to be a final judgment, and I think a lot of the times we really don't understand exactly why that is, and we have some misinterpretations of the reasons God does it. So I want you to turn to Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the middle of your Bible, closer to the end. My Bible, it's on page 831. Um, if you're on a tablet or a phone, I use the New American Standard, NASB 1995, it actually was the version. Um, but uh, Matthew, Matthew 13, verse 24, and so this is what Jesus, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here on earth, and he says, Jesus presented another parable to them, Matthew 13, 24, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares, or your Bible may say weeds, became evident also. 
The slaves of the landowner came and they said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Well, how does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy's done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us to then go and gather them up? And he said, No, for while you're gathering up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares, bind them in bundles, and burn them. And gather the wheat into my barn. If you go on down, you, we're not going to do it this morning, but if you keep going in that, in that chapter, Jesus explains this a little more. And this whole passage is built around, there is going to be a time when God brings everything into judgment. When, 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 he, when he does send the reapers to the field to pull the wheat and the weeds, he's going to separate the wheat from the tares, and there's going to be a judgment. So let me tell you what the judge, why, why when, when I talk about God's judgment is, is, why is it necessary and what does it mean? Well, let me tell you what it's not. Let me, let me start out by telling you what the judgment of God isn't and, and when it comes to his character. Sometimes we think we know a lot about him, and it's not that way. Number one, God doesn't render judgment because he's mean, okay? He, he, do, he doesn't render judgment because he's mean. He's not a mean God. And a lot of times we, we are painted this picture in Hollywood or on television or we're, we're painted a picture often that, that God is, is this, you know, cosmic policeman in the sky and he's just waiting for you to mess up. And, and, and so that when you do, he's going to just slam you down with a, an elbow from heaven and put you in your place. And, and some, of you even, some of you even grew up in churches like that. Some of you even grew up in churches where... God's just mad. He's just mad. And, and God's not mad. God's not mad at you. God's not angry. God is angry with sin. But, but God, God is not a God who's mean. In fact, it, I mean, there's so many verses in the Bible that tell us about God's nature of loving kindness. One is Psalm, one of them, just one of many is Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. He's slow to anger. God doesn't bring judgment because he's mean, and God doesn't bring judgment because he's unmerciful. He doesn't render judgment because he's, he's just unmerciful. He's not unmerciful. Um, he does have mercy. I mean, friends, if, if, you don't, if you don't think God is a merciful and patient God, just look around. Look at society. Look at the world around you. God is very merciful, and he's very patient. I mean... It says in 2 Peter 3, it says that the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. See, that, notice what Peter just said right there? That as we count time differently than God counts time, right? We look at time differently than God does. God's, God's not slow, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God, God is a patient God. In fact, one of the things we learn from this parable that Jesus taught us about what judgment looks like, I, I love that the farmer, who in this story represents God, I love that the farmer was patient. He didn't freak out. He didn't go crazy. He didn't go, what am I going to do? No, he, he said, no, just just wait. I'm oh, there's coming a judgment, but not today. Not today. So it, it brings us to the, to the real question is, why, why is God's final judgment necessary? 
Why, why is it necessary? If God's going to bring all the earth under judgment, and he is, then, then what's the reason for that? Well, that's a, that's a long sermon series, um, you know. Um, there's a lot in the book of Revelation I would encourage you to read about the great white throne and I've read that many, many times and, and how God's going to play out the end of the earth. And, and uh, there's also several camps on where you can land and, and, and still land accurately um, in, in how God plays out the end of time. But, you know, um, and then there's some people that are what we call uh, pan-millennial, pan-millennialists. It, it, it's all going to pan out in the end, uh, right? uh, which I think is pretty funny. Uh, but... But the reality is, no, God, God is going to bring final judgment, and he is going to do that. But let's talk for a minute. We know what it's not. It's not because he's mean. It's not because he's not merciful. So let's talk about exactly why. Why is it that in this story, we realize the whole time that this was about God bringing judgment to the heavens and the earth? And so I'm going to tell you just two key attributes this morning of, of why the judgment is going to be necessary. One, God, God never compromises his holy nature. So I want you to understand that the, the, the primary reason that God is going to bring judgment is God is never, ever, 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 ever going to compromise the fact that he is holy. Let me tell you something. Before God is love, before God is merciful, before God is, is long-suffering, before God is gracious, before God is kind, before God is anything, the number one attribute about God is he is holy. He is holy. And, 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 and he is like none other. There is none other like him. Right? There's, the scriptures testify to that over and over. There's nothing. There's no being. There never has been. There never will be. God, God is like nothing ever, ever has been or will be. And so God isn't going to do anything to compromise his holiness. And, and I think one of the when I talked about earlier about how Americans, how we look at the Bible... If you listen to society, for those that do believe in some form of a God, if you listen to most of your friends talk, what they look at, the way they look at God in a lot of times is either he is that angry judge in the sky, but most people see him as this really great granddad. He's just a, he's a granddad who always had $5 in his pocket when you stopped at the community store to get you some Starburst and a Coke. He, he's that great-grandfather that was always fun, always gentle. He was, the, he was the, the patriarch of the family. They're just gl glad to see everybody together. Ain't it great? And I want, I want you to know that God is not our grandfather in the sky. He's a holy God. He is a very holy God. Because I'm going to tell you, when it comes to his judgment and his executing judgment, God is holy. And in order to stand in his presence, he cannot stand in the presence of anything that isn't holy. Okay? If, if God is just a cosmic policeman or a cosmic grandfather, then let me tell you what he needs to do. Then God has a massive apology to give to Jesus. He's got a massive apology to give to Jesus because it was unnecessary. To sacrifice his son on whom all the sin of the world was, was placed? No, God is a holy God. 
And, and it, says, it says many times in Scripture, one of which is Romans 5, that it says when it comes to who Christ was, uh, I got it on the screen for you. Let's look at the next verse. Yeah, Romans 5, 8. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, through Christ. For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Listen to the language there, friend. Pay attention to the language of that verse. Wrath, reconciliation. Enemies, reconciled. See, all of my sins and all of your sins were placed on the shoulders of Jesus. All of my sins, all of your sins, all of the sin of humanity was placed because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God, God made it to where there had to be a payment for sin. So he is, going to, he is going to place judgment on sin because of his holy nature. God's never going to violate his holy nature. And for people, listen to me, for, for people in the world today, for all of your friends and all of your acquaintances, and even people in churches too, for us to wink at sin, for us to look at sin as, oh, it's no big deal, for us to think that, God, look, God's, it's all good, God's a loving God, and, and God's going to just, he, it's, it's all okay, just keep going, keep doing the best you can. You know, God, it's all going to be okay as long as you try hard enough, and as long as you meant right in your heart, and as long as the good outweighs the bad. Let me tell you something, friends, all of that is heresy. That's heresy. And I don't use the word heresy very often. That's just heresy, though. Because for people to think that, boy, I hope when I get to heaven, you know, the good outweighs the bad. I'm like, look, hey, it's not like a bell curve, you know? It's not a scale where God goes, hmm, let's start December 9, 1972, and let's just go from there. That's going to take a long time, right? I heard somebody say one time, um, oh, I forgive people, but I've but I've got a long memory. And I said to that person, do you want God to do that to you? I do like to forgive, but i got a long memory. Mm -mm. When, I, when I die, I'm going to tell you what I've bet my whole life on. It's not a bet. It's a promise. I'm going in behind an umbrella, and that umbrella is named Jesus. And he's covered every ounce of me. And the only reason I get to stand there is because the Bible calls Jesus the advocate. You listening? He's the advocate. Hey, Father, he's, he's one of ours. Come on. He's one of ours. Oh, come on. You see, I'm covered under the blood of Jesus. And, and if you're in Christ, you're covered under the blood of Jesus. For people to say that God weighs it out or God's just going to forgive it, it's all okay. It's gonna, listen, if you, if you hear people talking like that, they have no understanding of the idea biblically of what is called atonement. Atonement. For something to be atoned for, it means that there was a, a, a gaping atrocity and something had to go make it right. Because darkness, darkness doesn't self-correct. 
Okay? Darkness doesn't self-correct. And so because darkness doesn't self-correct, something had to go in and remove the toxicity, cover it, do the surgery that was necessary. Something had to intervene when we couldn't intervene on our own. And so God, the reason God judges is really simple. He's holy. When you read the story of the wheat and the tares, you see that he is holy and, and that, that there is going to be a judgment. And even, by the way, by the way, listen to me. I hope, you, I hope you picked this up over the last few weeks, right? hope you picked this up. Where was the wheat? Where were the wheat and the weeds located? Where were the weeds in relation to this story? If the wheat are the believers and the weeds are the non-believers, where is it all? Right here. It's all together. So I want you to understand something as you're listening to me today, friend. Listen to me really close. The greatest atrocity, the greatest crime that I could perpetrate on you is to try to convince you that you're saved if you're not. It's not my job to hammer you or beat you down or, or try to be your convictor. That's all the, the Holy Spirit's your convictor. But I'm telling you, inside the church of the Lord Jesus, there's a lot of religious people who are good people. Oh, they're very good people. Billy Graham actually one time said, Billy Graham was once quoted as saying that the greatest mission field in America is in the church. Because what, what we find is that, that the enemy makes us think that somehow if we can just try harder and do better and be better and think better and clean up and, and do a little better and then do a little more better and, and try to get our lives aligned, somehow it'll all work out in the end. And I'm telling you, friend, <laughs> holiness is not behavior modification. You understand that. Holiness is not just getting your attitude better and stopping gossiping a little more, you know. Holiness isn't that somehow, some way that you know you you have that you you have sex outside of marriage a little less each year. Holiness isn't that I'm not as greedy as I was last year. No. Holiness is that there is a holy God, and because he's holy, sin can't stand in his presence. So Christ becomes our advocate, and that's why he judges, because God simply isn't going to tolerate sin. But there's a promise in that, by the way. There's a promise in that in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, right? But we know that there is no way I can make me pure. Do you, do you hear me, friends? There's no way that I can make me pure. I don't, I don't have the intellect. I can't read all the theological commentaries. I could, study, I could study this word every single day, all day, until the day I die with the exception of sleep. And I could still, even doing that, it doesn't mean that I'm closer to God. It just means that I know a lot about the Bible. The way I come close to God is through Jesus. And that's the only way I can be made holy. So why is judgment necessary? Because in order for me to stand in his holy presence, I can't stand there as somebody who isn't as bad as they used to be. 
I can only stand there because Christ did for me what I could never have done on my own. So that's why judgment is necessary, because he's holy. But there's another reason that in, in this story, based on this story, why is the judgment necessary? I'll tell you why. Not only does God never abandon his holy nature, but God never abandons his redeeming nature. And that's part of this story, too, that God is a redeeming God. And I don't want you to ever lose sight of that, friend. Aren't you, listen, aren't you glad that God is not a God of second chances? God's a God of redemption. I don't want two chances. I don't want three chances. I want redemption. <laughs> because I, redemption and mulligans are two different things. Right? I don't want a mulligan at life. I want redemption. That's what I want. God never abandons his redeeming nature. If you read the story, and it's a beautiful story among the wheat and the weeds, notice he says, last verse, verse 30, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in time of the harvest, there, that, that's the harvest is the judgment. At the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather up all the tares, bind them together, burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. You know, God, God is a God of restoration. And so the reason that God is going to judge humanity and he's going to judge every sin he's going to judge every sin that's ever been he's going to judge racism he's going to judge materialism he's going to judge injustice he's going to judge every every ounce of 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 pain and brokenness that sin has caused he's going to set all of that right why because he cares if you notice one thing about this story right who, who, is, who is God in the story? He's the farmer. And I'll tell you something. Having been around a lot of farmers, I'll tell you something that I've learned about farmers, okay? One of the things I've learned about farmers is nobody cares about that dirt more than they do. Nobody. Nobody. I, I'm telling you, a farmer, would, would you, if you gave him the choice of, of, of cutting off his left arm or selling 30 acres of land, he's going to have to think for a minute. I'm, t- I'm not kidding. It, th- that there is, there is, farmers have an attachment to dirt in ways that you and I will never understand. They understand life cycles. And I'll tell you something else. Right now, uh, across America right now, we're in harvest season. If you know people that are in farming, I can tell you they are giddy. Many of them have a big family feast at the end of harvest because they've worked all year to get to that. They've endured trial and drought and bugs and disease and and money and weather and all kinds of things. And to get to harvest is this massive accomplishment. And and so they're just about giddy and exhausted at the same time. I've got a few friends that are farmers. I never call them this time of year because they're often working 20 hours a day. It's the truth. But when harvest comes, but see, because from the moment, this is really important, from the moment they put that seed in the ground, they were working all year to that moment. They were working all year to that moment where they get in a combine and they, 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 
they, they, all the rewards of their labor, they, they go in through there with those gearheads and they lift up all that, all that rice or all those beans or all that corn or whatever they're taking that year and they watch it go into the grain bins and it is an re- accomplishment for their work. And so they're, they're, they're making it all come full circle. And so the reason that the farmer in this story, he's waiting for harvest because there was never a time, there was never a time in this passage that harvest wasn't coming. Right? Did you hear that? There was never a time that harvest wasn't coming. So, when you look at why he's going to restore all of it, it's because he's a redeeming God. God has always been, listen to me, friend, God has always been about new. He's always been about new creations. I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Look at what Paul said. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, and the new things have come. That is not a do better. That is not a second chance. Every time that somebody goes through those baptism waters, you see a picture of a death a burial, and a resurrection. The whole point of the New Testament is a resurrection life, is a resurrection life. And you and I, listen, we are, if you're in Christ, you're not better than you used to be. That, biblically, that person is gone. Do you understand that? If you are in Christ, biblically, September 2nd, 1990 was the day I met Jesus. And September 3rd, there was a new dude walking around. I didn't really understand it. I'm still trying to understand it. But I'm going to tell you, praise God, that guy doesn't live anymore. If you're in Jesus, that woman that came to Christ, if you repented, listen, ladies, you're not the same person. Jesus did something that you could never do. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. And so what what God is doing is he's going to restore all of it. So at the final judgment, God is going to restore all things. Oh, it's going to be amazing. In fact, it even tells us, I'll give you a little glimpse into it. It even tells us in Revelation that he's going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. You see, look at what he says in Revelation 21. Now, I condensed it down. I wanted to put it all on one screen for you. It may be a little tough to see in the back row, so I'm going to read it for you. This is in the the final judgment. Then then John said, uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away, twice in one passage. The Bible says that the heaven that now exists and the earth that you're on right now, there's coming a day where this physical earth that has been marred by sin, broken by sin, infused with toxicity of humanity, God is literally going to do away with it, and the new heaven and the new earth will come, and and then the the, the final reign of God will be, and I'm telling you, friends, it is going to be a glorious inhabitance that we have. It is going to be like nothing we could ever fathom. 
Everything will be made right. Everything that was broken by the fall, everything that you and I broke, everything that, you know, that we contributed to throughout the course of humanity, God is going to take all of that and he's going to restore it. And he's going to make it new. You know why? Because from the dawn of time, redemption and reconciliation were in his heart. Redemption and reconciliation were in his heart. We walked away from him. He didn't walk away from us. And because we walked away and broke it all along the way, he's going to make it right. And it's going to be a grand and glorious sight to behold. The old has gone. The new has come. So where does that leave you? Well, as I see it, that leaves us in two places. To the Christian, I would say this. To the Christian, I would say this. Hold on. Just hold on. It's going to get worse. I mean, I see so many people, Christians I encounter all the time going, Look, what's going to happen? Look, well, read the last book. It gets way worse, y'all. I mean, it gets way worse. But let me tell you something. It can't get better until it gets worse. It can't get better until it gets worse. Jesus, it, listen, read the last book. Y'all, it's going to be like the spiritual Wild West. Craziness. You think it's crazy now. This is bad grammar, but we ain't seen crazy yet. All right? We haven't. So if you're a believer in Jesus, what's happening in our world right now is exactly what was going to happen all along. All along. But if you're not a Christian, and if, if you're one of those religious people, and you're a good person, let me tell you, there's going to come a day when the eastern sky is going to split, whether you want it to or not, it's going to split. And when it does, Jesus isn't coming as Savior. He's coming as judge. And as for right now, you have an opportunity to be on the proper side of eternity. You have a chance to be on the right side. Because you see, on that day... Religion is going to fall on its face. Religious people are going to be stunned. In that day, people that just tried harder and did better and went to church or went to temple or, or went to whatever they went to or whatever rock they laid on to try to get energy from the earth or whatever thing they deified or whatever, whatever mystical idea they thought or, or whatever other God they thought would all get us to the same place, they're going to be horrified. But that day hasn't happened yet. And so today, I would say to all of you listening to me, maybe you're listening on the podcast, maybe you're watching online, listen to me really closely. If the eastern sky split today, the Bible says 
the trumpet of the Lord will sound. And, and, God, and Jesus will descend. And those that are dead in Christ will rise first. And then those that remain will be caught up with him in the air. And so it will always be. Okay? When, when Jesus comes back, that's going to be the day. Either that day or the day you die. Either one of those days, you're going to step off into eternity. And I want you to listen to me. If you're not confident of what is going to happen to you on that day, then don't try to convince yourself. Listen to me. If I know with all the good in me and all the not so good in me and all the righteousness in me and all the unrighteousness in me, and that's all fair because it's all in there, I do know this. I have given my life to Christ, and my eternity is based on a promise, not on a feeling. So because my eternity is based on a promise, I am fully confident that if I leave this earth today, my sons and my wife and my family have no reason to mourn. They can cry a little, but first of all, I've got a pretty good life insurance policy. I'm worth way more dead uh, than I am alive. And, and, and then on top of that, um, it, you know, it just gets better from there. Okay, They can rejoice in knowing that Dad was sealed in eternity. That's based on a promise, not a feeling. I'm fully confident to die in Christ. And I want to say to you, if the idea of dying scares you, then if I had to lay my money down on one side of the fence or other, I'm going to lay it down on the idea that you don't know Jesus. Oh, the idea of dying is scary, but I'm not scared of it. The idea of dying isn't a fun one, but I, I don't get to go to heaven until I leave here first. I don't. I tell my boys that all the time. If something happens to me, you realize, boys, you don't get to go to heaven unless you leave here first. So my, my, my word to you this morning is if, if, if you are not sure of your eternity... Don't roll the dice on that. The Bible says you need to repent and you need to come to Jesus. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, Think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.